Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have with us Dr. Nicholas Koh. The vote-winning strategy in the U.S. is to say, the answer's America now, what's the question? <laughs> Dr. Koh is the director of the master's program in public diplomacy at the University of Southern California. He has a book that was recently pressed called Public Diplomacy, Foundations for Global Engagement in the Digital Age. And it couldn't be a better time to talk about global engagement in the digital age because it's pretty much all we can do. So I hope you guys enjoy. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Nicholas Cole, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. So I think the best way to start a conversation about public diplomacy is to define public diplomacy, as I'm not sure it's it's a popular term in academic circles. I'm not sure how sure. popular it is, you know, in the culture. Sure. Well, the, the way I, I define public diplomacy is that it is the way in which an international actor conducts their foreign policy through methods involving the engagement of a foreign public. So from that definition, you can already tell that I don't see it as a monopoly of the nation state, Mm -hmm. which means that like 25% of uh, people who work in the field already hate me. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, what I would say as well is that by saying that this is about engagement, I'm also saying that it doesn't necessarily have to be about persuasion or rhetoric. Uh, it might have that purpose of persuasion somewhere in the mix, but I see it more as being about understanding. And to me, the most important way you engage with a foreign public is by listening to that public. So uh, my own work has um, really tried to uh, realign public diplomacy from the kind of the um, emphasis that it began with as being a a substitute for propaganda to being a practice in its own right, which emphasizes listening and goals that are based on understanding rather than necessarily uh, getting an upper hand and getting a narrow win Mm -hmm. over over an interlocutor. Yeah. So sadly, I think you stepped on my second question was what's (laughs) the distinction between propaganda? No, well, the the distinction between propaganda and public diplomacy, this is a a controversial one. Uh, When I started out, I came to this as a historian of propaganda, and I just saw public diplomacy as being a rebranding of propaganda, really, which is how it began, that uh, the United States government wanted a new term for its public relations work in the mid-1960s that would allow them to say, we virtuous Americans do public diplomacy, those wicked communists do something called propaganda, and there's no similarity at all between them. Now, Whilst it might have begun as a exercise in euphemism, it didn't take long before the practitioners said, well, look, we've got this term, let's fill it up with benevolent meanings. So it might have begun quite cynically as a as a rebranding or or as a term for people who were looking to sell America, but the actual practitioners started saying, well, this term needs to describe our preferred way of operating, which is 
uh, putting effort into understanding as much as persuading, which is about listening as much as speaking, which is about cooperating and seeking out and identifying the win-win as much as it is looking for a, um, a unilateral win. And maybe the the most important point here is that public diplomacy is open to learning. And that's a really big difference between public diplomacy and propaganda, because, you know, however you slice it, I don't know any propagandist who says, oh, let's let's do a propaganda campaign and maybe we'll learn something about the people we're, we're uh, trying to persuade. You know, can you imagine, you know, Goebbels going into Hitler and saying, <laughs> yeah. Mein Führer, let's learn more about the people of Poland. You know, that wasn't, no. The only right. way in which a propaganda mindset is interested in learning is who, who are the targets? How do we segment our audience? They're not interested in saying, well, is there something existing in this in this community or in this audience we're seeking to engage with that we might actually benefit from? What can they say mm -hmm. to us? Uh, ultimately, propaganda is always, um, you know, uh, uh, this one-way street. Sure. And I assume Nazi propaganda at the end is world domination, which, you know, how people want to be dominated is probably not a big factor in <laughs> how you're going to dominate no. them. No, no, no. And so... What's the interplay or connection with soft power? Because these were sort of, you know, is one nested in the other? Soft power is more about attraction. Is that more what you're putting out to the world in this sure. reflective? Well, the way I see, like, any form of power, whether we're talking about, you know, batteries to make your uh, TV remote work or uh, a concept of power on the international stage, it's about what you have the ability to do, right? So uh, it's about inherent something that is inherent. Uh, it isn't necessarily active, and it isn't necessarily about actually discharging that or leveraging it. Um, so I see soft power as being something that that a country either has or doesn't have. And I see soft power as being located in the imagination of the audience. So a country that is admired is able to do stuff in world affairs. But that state of admiration is in the initial theory of soft power, something that's either there or it isn't there. Mm -hmm. Public diplomacy is a mechanism to try and build soft power or to say, if you already have soft power, this is what I'd like us to do together. So you might use your public diplomacy to promote your ability to convene a conversation, uh, to move an issue uh, forward, or through dialogue to address uh, a, a, um, an, an issue. So I see soft power as being inherently kind of a... a a passive, the same way that there's a terrain or there are strengths, there are weaknesses, whereas public diplomacy is is the active element. It's how you actually leverage the differences that exist, the advantages that exist, or trying to even increase those advantages by making positive aspects of your society known. Now, the problem with soft power is that it has become so dilute that you have the Chinese government talking about it. Uh, you have uh, very, very sloppy uh, references to it. And it 
I'm not sure it means that much right now. And so in my own work, I came to the conclusion that we need a, a tighter concept that isn't just for the wealthiest countries that can afford, say, an international broadcaster. So right now, I prefer to talk about reputational security, meaning that there's this element out there in, the, in, in international affairs that some countries are able to cultivate where because they are known for something, because they are respected, their security is, uh, is enhanced to a certain extent. And you can see that we do have some countries that lack reputational security. They lacked a reputation. And so when uh, hostility came knocking, the world turned away. And a good example of that would be Ukraine, which wasn't known for anything other than being a post-Soviet state. So when Russia came knocking, um, the, the, the world didn't see it as a priority because there was no non-post-Soviet um, uh, narrative for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Their own self-perception that they were this you know, vibrant uh, country with a great contribution to make to Europe, that had a distinctive culture, People know that about Poland, but they didn't know that about U Ukraine. And you can see how whenever Poland's been threatened, there has been much more of a um, much more of a, a movement around the world to do something about this. I remember as a kid when uh, martial law was declared on uh, Poland, how many countries and even uh, individuals rallied to say something about that. And, and you didn't see a uh, let Ukraine be Ukraine movement or a mm -hmm. stand by Ukraine or uh, nothing of, of the kind that we saw around Poland. So my conclusion, you know, from this, this little example would be that there is, uh, there are countries that have a, a secure and enhanced security coming from their reputation. And there are countries that lack a certain security that would come from reputation. So a small country like, say, Kosovo or a emerging country like Kazakhstan really does well when it tries to explain what it's for and to build a relevance really of any kind with mm -hmm. a, an, an audience. But the most important relevance to me is a, an ethical re relevance and to be not only seen for being a, a good trading partner or a good partner in uh, physical security, but to be a moral country that contributes to a global good. So I'm really interested right now in the work that Simon Anholt's been doing on good countries and mm -hmm. uh, the conversation around developing uh, an idea of a international good to which countries should work. My argument is if they do, then an element of their security will be enhanced. I would love to hear about like the mechanism of how you present yourself as interested in that moral good, because that's only as strong as another nation views the international mm -hmm. system. Like, how do you present to Russia that you are in favor of a moral good when they don't care about a moral good to begin with? I think that um, the con that there's a difference here between a conversation with Russians and a conversation with the Russian state. And that as far as the Russian state is concerned, it's at a moment where right now it has no incentive to behave. All the advantage to them comes from being a spoiler. And every generation, one nation gets to come along and have an advantage from 
not conforming from uh, saying a plague on all your houses, going around saying, oh, alliances don't work, uh, nobody's saying it, and there's no such thing as truth, and uh, being a spoiler of the international system. But within that, there are individual uh, Russians and Russian voices uh, that, of course, play into a global conversation that have been part of international understanding, that have built uh, cross-cultural understanding and exchange and have been part of some terrific programs over the years. And so I think we need to find people who agree with us in these societies, but also reward collectively people who play by the rules and states who play by the rules and find a way of reintroducing the benefits that come from uh, rule playing uh, sorry rule abiding mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah absolutely but so i think you raise a you raise a, a you know a very important point and maybe russia is the hardest case and you don't start there you start with mm -hmm. other countries by getting some of our allies to conform to international behavioral standards mm -hmm. and to say you know maybe we won't sell you armaments if um, you have no journalists who are both critical of the regime in the in the country outside of jail, you know, mm -hmm. and you know there are a number of countries that uh, Britain has heretofore been happy to trade with and happy to work with uh, that have appalling records on the human rights around media, and so I I, th I believe those are the sorts of uh, we should start on our own side and building the norms within the countries we work most with and then the countries we work least with or have most problem with will mm -hmm. understand the value in working together. No, I do agree. If your only criticism in a country is coming from your prisons, that probably doesn't go very far. <laughs> no. no. Is it, well, so who is we here? Because, of course, we have the transnational we, who is always going to be an incredibly important part of public diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Then you, you get into an abstraction at some point, though, because you become, well, I don't I represent the U.S. I may not support our executive, but the we that actually represents our values is in your favor. How far does that go if our actual country is not acting in that benefit? Yes, that's well, that's a that's a big question, and I think that one of the problems for some international actors is that they have become separated from their own publics. They kind of forgot to do the internal diplomacy, and to me, the clearest case of this, I'm afraid, is the European Union, uh, which really forgot to keep explaining every step to its own population and it could be appreciated and admired around the world and not understood in its own backyard and mm -hmm. this is really where brexit comes from so i think you've you've illuminated a very uh, profound problem and so who do you think is good at this right now what countries or you know individuals mm -hmm. or groups are are good at public diplomacy sure and who's, that... who's bad at it? yeah yeah well that's a good that's a good question you know there are certain elements in public diplomacy that, that I admire. I, do, I divide classic public diplomacy into, into five elements. And the first is listening. The second is advocacy. The third is uh, cultural work. The fourth is exchange. And the fifth is international broadcasting. And many countries 
are skilled in just one of those areas. <laughs> you know, there are great listening countries. Uh, Germany and Switzerland have been fantastic listening countries. Uh, Britain has been an amazing uh, broadcasting country. France is really focused on culture and sees that as you know, what the country's all about. The United States puts a lot of emphasis on exchange, on bringing students in, sending young Americans uh, overseas. Japan has also done a lot around exchange. So different countries have strengths in, uh, mm -hmm. in different areas. What I admire in the European approach that you see particularly in Germany and in the UK is that they have the good sense to separate out those elements and to have firewalled institutions working on each of those areas so that your advocates are not confused with your listeners or your conventional diplomats or are not mixed up with exchange and you don't have the same requirement to get a short-term political policy win from a long-term activity like international broadcasting or facilitating engagement through culture makes it a lot, e a lot easier. The less political mm -hmm. you are, the easier it is to work with artists or, or filmmakers or with the creative sector. And to me, this is the problem with American public diplomacy or the, the public diplomacy of the United States, that almost everything is in some way connected to the State Department. And that gives it a level of short-term politicization that can often be a little bit counter- productive and it leads to a lot of arguments that other countries just don't have other democracies just don't have because mm -hmm. they have firewalls um, uh, protecting each element of public diplomacy from being kind of compromised by the other and the worst one the one that you really have to guard against is when civilian public diplomacy is running concurrently with uh, military psychological operations. And that is disaster when those two get confused and the, the mm -hmm. credibility of your, of your civilian advocacy work is just uh, so undermined. Could you speak more to that point? Is that kind of the connection between, you know, we're trying to level a country, but we're also trying to win hearts and minds. So we're, mm -hmm. yeah, are those no, both military actions? No, I think they're both military, and I see uh, uh, psychological operations as being uh, as being rightly conducted by the military, and uh, something that has to be firewalled from civilian public diplomacy. Uh, the way it works in the United States is there are special teams who are military information support teams. They used to be called MIST teams, and they would use printing presses that have been paid for by the Pentagon to create leaflets for civilian campaigns. Mm -hmm. uh, but other countries don't do that. And <laughs> there's a reason mm -hmm. why you just don't want your civilian and your military uh, mixed up if you can, uh, if you can help it. I, I, in my experience, mm -hmm. it's a really bad idea. I know you've written a credit about, about how public diplomacy has to be credible. And I think one of mm -hmm. the pieces of evidence you used, this is way back, but the BBC in World War One reporting good and bad news. That oh, was World War Two in BBC or, or, World War Two. Sorry. <laughs> that was, no, no, no. You're, um, we didn't have radio you, back so in you World you can War One. So that's right. Uh, um, so <laughs> the idea of a, a public broadcasting station promoting mm -hmm. bad news is pretty revolutionary. Yeah. Um, where are we in sort of that credibility phase? Obviously, this doesn't have to be a fake news conversation, but in terms of uh -huh. using media to improve the image of your country, um, does that still exist? 
Oh, for sure. And I think that Britain's a good case of, of that. Though credibility has to be really looked after because there will always be people who are looking to undermine the good name of a reliable, uh, reliable broadcast. Credibility rests with the audience. And it's very interesting to see around the world how you have to ask audiences about what's credible and which broadcasters are credible. And in some places, people prefer Voice of America to the BBC. In other places, they prefer the French to uh, the Germans. You know, the um, audiences mm-hmm. do a, a pretty good at sorting out uh, identifying their uh, favored sources. But right now, it's international broadcasting isn't just about credibility. It's also about being there. And one of the depressing features of our global media terrain right now is so many uh, institutions are pulling back and you need a state subsidy in order to maintain stringers in some of these uh, places around the world. So this is the advantage for uh, Xinhua, the Chinese state Chinese state news agency, is that they have the backing of the Chinese state. So they can be in very, very small places across Africa. Um, and you have NPR, for example, trying to cover all of Africa uh, from Dakar. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or, oh, there's another one I heard on NPR, just just a ridiculous distance uh, mm-hmm. between the journalist and the location that it, it doesn't really help at all. So I think that even when somebody is credible in terms of their uh, politics, they may be incredible in terms of their distance or just so far behind the game that you have to use uh, news from the people who are right there, which increasingly is Xinhua because they can afford it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dakar, Dakar to Mozambique is a hell of a <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> who's covering that. Yes. It, but in the last 20 years, though, we've seen more established American news stations and newspapers just completely punt their foreign coverage, it seems like. It just yes. doesn't sell as well. People want to know what's happening in America. Yes. Do you think we're ever going to move back to getting more of a foreign presence? Or have we ceded that to RT and, like you said, um, Chinese state news? That's a hard That's a hard one because there is an American impulse towards isolation or that is uh, very deep-seated in American culture. That This is one of the few countries in the world where a great foreign policy means I don't have to think about foreigners, you know? <laughs> it's the only mm-hmm. empire in history where people haven't wanted to go and live in the places that they <laughs> develop um, influence over. And so I think the world doesn't quite know how to cope with that. Uh, historically, the United States has... Uh, interest in foreign affairs has, has tracked the relevance of foreign affairs in American people's lives. And so maybe this is one of the things that will change with the with the virus. Because suddenly Americans are seriously interested in public health in Italy or discussing uh, Chinese statistical gathering um, uh, habits, public health in the Netherlands. There is mm-hmm. an amazing range of interests which have suddenly emerged. <laughs> a, a, sorry, amazing range of experts who have suddenly yeah. And people, I'm sure I remember them Mm -hmm. as being counter-radicalization experts, and turns out they're actually experts in communication of viruses. So A lot of people Googling what Schengen zone means, I'm sure, in the last month or so. Yes, yes. 
It's well, how does this all fit to in America first? Because that is obviously a unique. Well, that is Trump's slogan, but mm. it's also mm. feeding into something very real in America that we're very domestically focused. Forty yes. percent of us don't yes. own passports; have never traveled. Yes. Uh, where does public diplomacy work at? What I say to students is, look, when they come in and they're struck by American parochialism, uh, is that, hey, you know, you know, just because Americans haven't heard of you, don't take it personally. Uh, in LA, people aren't interested in Sacramento, you know. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> there's there's just such a tendency, and it comes with the largest places, that the largest places have a luxury of looking inwards which just isn't available if you happen to be born in Luxembourg, uh, you know, where right. you throw a Frisbee and it can be in another country, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> uh, that, that it's, it just isn't, um, it isn't a viable option over there. The way that this has been counted historically is by Americans actually getting to know uh, foreigners. And, you know, there are wonderful programs in the U.S., sister city programs, and, and those kinds of that kind of work to bring together Americans, and I, I think that we really need leadership on this, and uh, to have American leaders who are interested in what the rest of the world thinks. Unfortunately, that's a, a rare thing. Uh, mm-hmm. People in the Senate who've really made that part of their career. Um, there was Senator Luger, uh, before him Fulbright, to some extent Senator Kennedy, Ted, that is Senator Ted Kennedy. Um, but it's its a rarity. Um, there are many more votes in saying, why should I listen yeah. to a foreigner? I already know everything I need to because I'm an American. You know, that the vote winning strategy in the US is to say, the answer's America. Now, what's the question? <laughs> and other countries don't have that luxury, but I think the United States would be wise to have a little look around and see what answers may be available or maybe enhanced through dialogue or learning from one another. And I think that the virus will act as a big wake-up call to that because nobody is going to claim that the United States has a perfect healthcare system, that it was the best prepared country for the virus. I remember a a uh, press conference that the president did where he he talked about uh, some international study of preparedness for epidemics and said, and the U.S. is the number one. We're the most prepared. We're the best defended. And, you know, that now looks such yeah. a, uh, looks like a crazy claim. Mm-hmm. And um, all kinds of questions will come out. And the United States is being um, well. Let me let me back up and and uh, explain. When I'm thinking about international reputation, I, I've come to understand that there's a process of discounting that goes on. By this, what I mean is that Americans are very upset by some things that happen within the United States. So mm. a uh, there's a there's a mass shooting, and Americans think, oh, what will the rest of the world think? There's a scandal on Wall Street or a scandal in Hollywood. Oh, what will the rest of the world think? There's a particularly eccentric politician who says crazy stuff, and they they think, oh, what will the world think? What will they think about um, uh, this person? The rest of the world already knows that if you have lax gun laws, mm-hmm. every now and again somebody gets shot. 
They know that many people only become Hollywood producers so they can prey on starlets, and they understand that people in Wall Street, some people on Wall Street are thieves, but they still admire the United States over and above most other countries. Mm-hmm. And so they've discounted that element from their assessment of American identity. Same as when Russia tortures somebody or kills a, an opposition uh, politician, they don't think, oh, Russia is a terrible country because they already know yeah. that Russian leaders play hardball. So mm-hmm. Russia is still living within a kind of a bubble of uh, behavior associated with uh, the leadership of the country. The problem for the United States and the challenge for the United States is they have to find out if the bad behavior that is associated with the virus is consistent with America's reputation or pushes it in a different direction. So Mm -hmm. what I'm thinking about specifically here would be President Trump's attempt to buy uh, exclusive access to the German medicine or the stories about commandeering supplies meant for other countries and pulling them back to the United States. Will that behavior be seen as consistent with an American, uh, existing American behaviors, or will it be seen as uh, heading off into new territory? Because mm-hmm. it's when it's in new territory that there's reputational risk, and you could even say the potential for damage to America's reputational security. The good news for Britain is I think that Brexit, for example, upset British people, but many people in the rest of the world thought, oh, British people are argumentative, British people Mm. are are weirdly patriotic, British people are traditionalists. It kind of didn't make sense that they were in the European Union anyway. So uh, it hasn't rewritten the book on Britain for Britain to be awkward over uh, the European Union. But it may be that countries that do unexpectedly well might achieve an unexpected bounce in their international reputation. You can already see how people are paying more attention to Taiwan as a result of uh, what's happened. Um, you know, Taiwan, which officially, from the Chinese point of view, is a, a province of China uh, and not a nation at all. And you look at what's happening with Iceland, where the uh, public health has really been that they were incredibly early uh, responders working at the start of February on public health issues and have done a really good job of taking care of their population. It may be that people will think, well, why aren't we more like Iceland? But mm. the country that I think is uh, is large, already has a good reputation and has an, a great potential to go a long way as a result of this is South Korea. And the records are looked into as the policies are examined. The way that South Korea responded, I think, will Im- impress people and will um, will be added to an existing tally of positive stories about South Korea based, you know, from going from the success in the Oscars, people loving Mm -hmm. K-pop, people liking their Samsung TV, uh, all Mm -hmm. the way up to um, uh, noticing a positive uh, uh, policy outcome. So that would be my tip for who will get good, who will get soft power from the COVID-19 epidemic i suspect it'll be it'll be south korea
So how do you see that same sort of argument playing out for China, who, for all of their success in the last mm-hmm. 20 years, have probably not gained a single meaningful ally in anything they've done, yet compared to other large countries, they've done on paper a much better job at handling this than especially the US. Well, I think you've got two stories in China. You've got the story of the Chinese government and you've got the story of the Chinese people. And I think that the Chinese government story that slices both ways because they obviously had some early missteps. They then worked hard to try and pull everybody into line and use um, the kind of leverage that's available to an authoritarian regime to do that. The reputation of the Chinese people is a very different thing uh, because that's based on how individuals have responded. And I think that many of the individual acts of heroism and courage of medical personnel, of sacrifice, Uh, of individual Chinese citizens, and just the good spirit shown in the viral videos that have been created by Chinese uh, people uh, have endeared them to international audiences. Mm -hmm. And that the uh, acts of kindness that are coming through international channels are very much appreciated. I mean, in my, you know, the only people who've written to me to say, have my family got masks, would be like some, uh, turn out to be uh, a Chinese Mm -hmm. educational foundation that I'm I'm talking to about other, other stuff. It's really nice that they Uh, asked if we need masks and I said we do they haven't turned up yet (laughs) you know at least they asked yeah right I'm I'm sure they I'm sure they will in in due course Uh, but those little things make a big difference many people in the U.S. didn't understand why Chinese people wore masks and saw it as slightly sinister now we're all wearing uh, masks Mm -hmm. or supposed to in LA at least yeah, uh, we've come to a, a, a kind of a closer understanding of what might be going on in that in that society. Yeah, there's definitely been no more international friction in my lifetime than right now in terms of what kind of media everyone is consuming. It has been, in terms of what public diplomacy is supposed to do to the internet era, it's all just little bits. It's all just individual stories going through to everyone, which. Yes, we had these communication channels before, but no one really cared what was going on in Taiwan and the U.S. No. Honestly, cared. And now, like when someone is sick in Taiwan, it is actually felt in America in a way. It's the fabric that we all pretended existed and actually might. Yes, and so I think that we have an opportunity uh, to build something constructive out of this moment, this sort of realization of our interconnection. It's not a slam dunk because it could go either way and there's a lot of negative feeling being generated. But I see international cooperation as being kind of a pendulum that you move, uh, the the international uh, scene has moved from uh, very polarized moments to moments of coming together. If you like your 1914 moment, your 1919 moment, your 1938 moment, your 1946 moment. Usually there's something horrible happening in, in between. <laughs> I was going to say, there's and some big if, events. <laughs> if we can take the, vir- the viral outbreak as our horrible event and take the cue from that, then it would be an excellent opportunity to bring something positive out of, the, um, out of this experience.
And so how do you, in your, you know, just in maybe academic circles, measure the success of public diplomacy? So, you know, Saddam watched a lot of 80s action movies. I don't think it, you know, gave him a great impression of American culture or values. So what is the distinction between just pervasion of mm -hmm. American ideas or no, moral that's all, that's, that's a really interesting case because the, you know, if you talk to Romanians about what gave them an idea that the West, Western, Western ideas would be worth bringing in, that they should maybe transform the society, Chuck Norris was a big part of <laughs> was a big part of that. It. So yeah, yeah. So um, you know, different audiences get different stuff from uh, mm -hmm. from different sources. But I'm sorry that uh, Chuck Norris has completely thrown me off. Could you repeat the question? <laughs> it had nothing to do with Walker, Texas Rancher, but yeah. uh, so I mean, basically, just how do we measure the, the success of oh, yes. we can see our culture in other societies american movies play are you know huge for hollywood box office in china what yeah. does actually mean it's making a difference well certainly look measurement of public diplomacy is a whole subfield of public diplomacy and there are multiple ways to do it and sometimes people are looking for a kind of a win that is unreasonable to mm -hmm. expect. One of the biggest successes in public diplomacy was when the US worked with European partners to explain why it was a good idea to do in deploy cruise missiles in Europe in the mid-1980s. Mm -hmm. They didn't teach Europeans to love America. They didn't teach Europeans to embrace uh, the idea of nuclear war. They just persuaded enough Europeans to tolerate American missiles on their soil so that there could be negotiations which led to the removal of those missiles. So sometimes your biggest win might not look like anything that you can uh, take to the bank or truly celebrate, but a policymaker will recognize that uh, as they say in uh, in DC, or they, at least they used to, someone has moved the needle, mm -hmm. uh, and you don't need to turn a an enemy into a friend for a, a significant uh, transformation to take place. So, um, but I think in terms of popular culture, this is just something that you can work with, and the United States now has to realize that. There are many other popular cultural games in town. We were talking a little earlier about South Korea and the cultural power of the United States has certainly been diluted. And a lot of the things in American culture don't please Americans, and don't please foreigners that mm -hmm. much either. Uh, and they're just there to make money. So uh, it's always good to pay attention to the sorts of stories America is sending around the world and to think, well, how does this country want to be represented? What kind of ideas uh, does America stand for? I'm impressed by the ability of world audiences to work out what's really going on. Uh, mm. I think that global audiences get rather too easily dismissed. They're not quite the as naive as uh, politicians assume. I so, and so I do trust them to get the right idea about countries, actually. Where 
where is public diplomacy best being wielded in the U.S.? I, I read one of your re- previous articles talking about the State Department was sort of decades behind in actually using using these sort of networks, actually oh, having a coherent message. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. The What I call the long road to uh, public diplomacy 2.0. Yes. Uh, well, that's unbelievable. It's like the guy who didn't hire the Beatles. There was somebody in the, uh, somebody in the State Department who said nobody will ever want to use the internet for television. And, you know, so why do we need why do we need enough bandwidth to transmit video? And, you know, mm-hmm. completely missed what was already happening. It wasn't even like it was uh, right. still, uh, still to happen, but just missed. Um, it's like an example of that over overconfidence in, in what they know. Yeah, so sure, the the US took a long time to get into uh, digital diplomacy, and then got into it in a, uh, something of the wrong way. Still looking for wins rather than for uh, the. Um, public diplomacy of empowerment, where you're helping people who are credible to the audience you want to work with to to speak rather than speaking yourself. So, mm-hmm. Where do you see this happening now and in the future if the State Department is not taking these ideas seriously? Well, I think that the State Department has learned, and now there is really interesting stuff going on, And um, uh, but of course there could always be more, and uh, above all, you know, we need personnel. And when you hear about hiring freezes and people mm-hmm. not being appointed and public diplomats not being respected, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I've been impressed by the individuals working in American public diplomacy. Even some people, you know, the uh, recent uh, leadership has been, um, you know, has done some interesting and impressive things in you know, within the field of public diplomacy, even given mm-hmm. the limits on the Trump administration. I just wish that public diplomacy were taken more seriously, especially the exchange elements, that this was something that people invested in, took pride in, uh, and something that was seen as an import, a more important part of American diplomacy than it historically uh, has been. Uh, in many ways, American public diplomacy has not really ever recovered from the decision in 1999 to fold the old United States Information Agency back into the Department of of State. And, you know, I know everybody's bashing the Trump administration right now, but that was a Clinton administration uh, decision. And both parties have done some pretty dumb stuff mm-hmm. in terms of support for American public diplomacy over the years. Nobody gets, um, uh, nobody escapes criticism in that. But there's also nobody escapes compliments either. There is yeah. Both parties have had good people and have done good stuff, though I don't want to say there are good people on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that's been, uh, that phrase has been ruined for all time. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think our last president who really cared about these ideas was probably George Bush Sr. And we love him uh, so much, yes. we voted him out after. One yes, time. that's so, right. Yeah. Oh, that's one of the missed opportunities in U.S. public diplomacy. They had so mm-hmm. many good things that were ready to go. Uh, great people in, in place. And even there was a Texan director of uh, USIA <laughs> at that point. And uh, yeah, Henry Henry Cato. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really one of those things that that might have been. And uh, James A. Baker, I think, was a very impressive 
Secretary of State. That's one of the uh, great might have been. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the more Texans you have in your cabinet. The more, I think. <laughs> yes. Well, so we're, we're pushing the end of our time. I do want to ask, we've touched on film a little bit. I know you uh, co-authored a book, um, I think it was 10 years ago now, talking about sort of examples of U.S. policy in film. And I think you wrote about right. Three, Three Kings was one of the films you wrote about. Sure. Um, I would love to hear you talk about it. Just sure. Of, well, yes. the film stuff really comes out of you know, my work as a historian and thinking, well, you know, historians are used to looking at documents, but what if we looked at film and tried to understand how history shaped film and how film can serve as a historical source? And so uh, a number of the films that I looked at, uh, I did a book, two books, one on popular cinema and empire and one on popular cinema and images of the future. So looking at those two themes, imperialism and images of the future. And in the imperialism book, I, I found that a very enlightening about you know, U.S. foreign policy, including uh, some really weird stuff like the CIA <laughs> correcting film scripts to make them less mm-hmm. racist in the 1950s. <laughs> I, I thought, that is I've really, never heard that before. I, wow. that's, uh, that was amazing. Yeah, Three Kings was... Um, I mean, that's, you know, very interesting. Now it seems incredibly prophetic to mm-hmm. uh, tell that kind of story about American power in the Middle East. And uh, uh, I think that film deserves a, a wider audience than it had, uh, than it's had uh, um, uh, to date. It's a, it's a, uh, a great movie. Uh, and I, I don't see why historians should be limited to only thinking about printed documents that films are part of our history and uh, can tell us a lot. But equally, when we're trying to understand films, reading the documents relating to those movies can be incredibly helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. The most fun I ever had doing this work was looking at this movie, uh, PT-109, that came mm-hmm. out in, um, uh, it would be sort of 62-ish, uh, about when President Kennedy was a naval officer. And the Kennedy administration got involved in trying to position and encourage the film or and to uh, uncover that history of how this film was made or really unmade with the help of the Kennedy administration mm-hmm. uh, was was just fascinating including I discovered in the um, archives this old script uh, that had been sent to the White House and they just assumed in the archive that it was uh, just a, a courtesy. But I asked them if they could take the um, staple out that had stapled the cover sheet to the script. And when they took the staple out, 10 new pages became free to read. And they had Kennedy's handwriting in where he wow. was saying what he liked, <laughs> what he didn't like, uh, what they had to cut out. And uh, uh, so there's a very direct example of the government mm-hmm. getting involved in in filmmaking uh and so it's a fun thing for me to look at on my days off really Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's nice that people are are interested in that and and that the work has uh, made a difference i've killed to see trump's handwritten notes on his future biopic so (laughs) hopefully we're all all around to see that that's right yes well dr cole thank you so much for coming on the show this is terrific conversation a better time than ever to talk about public diplomacy i guess because Nothing else yeah, to but be it keeps be. on going, doesn't it? It just mm-hmm. keeps on going. And there's not much that can fix the world right now, but public diplomacy maybe has a few answers. Sure. Well, thank you for your time. Stay healthy. All You're welcome. Thank you. The view 
views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.